So the book of James talks about the importance of, of walking in the way of the Lord. And it talks about manifestations of walking in the way of the Lord. And James chapter one says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And he says this, he says, when a man looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like, it does him no good. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then he mentions three areas that facilitate the blessing and the empowerment of God. And he says, James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself. And his religion is worthless. And he says, religion that God our Father considers as pure and undefiled, secondly, is, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and then thirdly, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So I'm just going to walk through this passage very quickly and see how taking care of widows and orphans fits into the whole overview. First of all, he says, he says don't be self-deceived. Don't be self-deceived when you talk about yourself. Don't be self-deceived in that you give yourself a pass, but you're harsh and you're critical about other people. Don't be self-deceived when you, when, when you are very gracious to how you live, but you're very condemning of how other people live. He says, so, so keep a tight rein on your tongue. Uh, a self-deceived person is, is someone who is very gracious to himself, but not to other people. A, a not self-deceived person understands what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, where he says well, in, in incredible imagery, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log that protrudes from your own eye, the two by four? He says, first get the, the two by four out of your eye, then help your brother. You are responsible to help your brother, but man, deal with your own stuff first. Don't be deceived. A not self-deceived person understands the fragile nature of life and walks accordingly. The self-deceived, not self-deceived person understands what James 4, 6 says when it says, uh, God in his mercy gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The self, not self-deceived person understands verses 9 and 10 that says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Understand there is a, a glorious empowering of God when we understand that we desperately need him. I was reading Psalm 30 recently. And Psalm 30 is talking about God's goodness to him, and he says this, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I'm there, I'm with it. And then he says this, by your favor, O Jehovah, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. The psalmist says, you know, if God hides his face, I'm dismayed, I'm unhinged. And so, a non-self-deceived person understands that God gives grace to the humble. A non-self-deceived person understands James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's power in confessing and 
receiving the forgiveness of God. A deceived person doesn't confess his sins, doesn't deal with it. He walks in an oblivious state. And then another issue he rises here is, as far as receiving the blessing of God is he says, you know, don't be stained or polluted by the world. And the worldly system in this book talks about three basic areas. Number one is a worldly person shows partiality. A worldly person tries to curry the favor of the wealthy and these are wealthy people who are taking the believers to court and who are persecuting the name of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with wealth, but, but the wealth of these people we're trying to curry favor with are arrogant, abusive people. Listen to chapter five regarding worldly people. It says, it says this. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud and they're crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He says, you're abusive to people. So, so one step standard of worldliness is you seek to carry the favor of abusive people while you ignore the poor person says, sit in the corner, go over there, but don't bother me. Another standard of worldliness in this book is the, the lack of control of the tongue. And this is what James says, James 3, verse 9. We, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James is like, can you believe it that with the same curse we sing the doxology and with the same tongue we curse out men and women? So this shouldn't be so. A worldly person doesn't control his speech. And the third standard of, of worldliness is that you, you, you covet. Verse 4 or chapter 4 says this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, so you're coveting, you're involved in self-worship, you're involved in self-congratulatory living. And it says this, chapter four, verse 13. A worldly person doesn't pursue God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you are a mist that appears for a little while and then you vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So that's worldliness. And so you look at this, you say, well, we know the importance of not being self-deceived. That's a, that's a standard. And we know we shouldn't be worldly because the book of James says, a friend of the world is an enemy with God. But it seems out of kilter to say that the third standard is to look after widows and orphans and their distress. Yeah, that's very central in what is said in James. 
And as I, I read this, I, I say to myself, I should be someone who is very concerned about widows and orphans. I should be very concerned about children who have been abandoned and who have no hope. That's what the church should be about. I should be very concerned about, about widows who, who depend on the church for sustenance and, and protection. I recently read a wonderful book. It's been the New York Times bestseller list. It's entitled Hillbilly Elegy by a man named J.D. Vance. And his story is, is this. J.D. Vance. Um, he was raised in eastern Kentucky and Ohio in what he calls the Appalachia area and in extreme poverty. His mother had at least eight husbands and several live-in lovers. His father was very uninvolved in his life, only tangentially, occasionally. Uh, extreme drug abuse around him, meth, uh, it's a horrible background. But, but yet in the midst of that, he did have community. And his story is that he uh, was made it to high school after living with his mother and numerous live-in lovers and pseudo-fathers. And his freshman year in high school, he was about to flunk out. He was failing all of his classes. And he had a maternal grandmama named Mama. And Mama intervened in his life. And she was a crusty character, a crusty, crusty character. Uh, but, but she loved this boy, and she took him into her home. And she had rules, and she said, you do this and you do that. And all of a sudden, his grades started picking up. And his junior and senior year, he flourished academically. And then he said, you know, I need discipline. And so he joined the Marine Corps, and he was 47 pounds overweight. <laughs> and he joined the Marine Corps, and he lost 48 pounds at Paris Island in 12 weeks. And he had two tours of duty in Iraq as a U.S. Marine. And, and then he said, you know, I, I would like to go to university. And he applied to Ohio State University because that's where his state residency was. And he made it into Ohio State. And he worked two jobs to go through school. And he did well. And he graduated and wanted to go to law school. And he said, why not? And so he applied to Yale Law School. And he got into Yale Law School. This hillbilly. Not only did he get in Yale Law School, he was the editor of the Yale Law Review. Uh, it just, it's a great story. But in the midst of this book, which talks about his, his, his background, when, when he graduated from boot camp, when he graduated from Ohio State, when he graduated from Yale Law School, he would have 15 to 20 relatives, real hillbillies from Eastern Kentucky that came to these graduation exercises. And he always had a sense of belonging to an extended family. And as he closes his book, this is what he says. He says, we need to be involved in caring for children as foster families. I wish I could say this was a small problem in our country, but it is not. In a given year, there are 640,000 children in the United States, most of them poor, who have spent at least some time in foster care. Add to that the unknown number of kids who face abuse or neglect, but somehow avoid the foster care system, and you have an epidemic, one that current policies all too often just exacerbate. He says, understand, I never went to bed hungry. Malnourished, yes, but not hungry. Thanks at least in part to the old age benefits that Mama, my grandmother, generously shared with me. 
These governmental programs are far from perfect. But to the degree that I nearly succumbed to my worst decisions, and I came quite close, the fault lies almost entirely with factors outside of the government's control. What he's saying is that, is that governmental programs, as far as sustenance and giving, they're good. But he says, what we need are communities where children can be loved and embraced. And that's what we need to do here. And you give foster respite. You pray for foster families. You pray for families that adopted. But we all should be involved in this. You, you see, we need community. God is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never been a time when God was not in glorious fellowship in the land of the Trinity. Never. And because you and I are made in the image of God, we were made for community and to extend community and to bless people. Uh, last weekend, we had a woman named Rosaria Butterfield here, and the more I review her notes and the more I think, the more I realize it was a very good conference. And she, she is a woman who was in the lesbian community for years and years and years, and now she's became a believer and she got out and she's married with four adopted children. But this is why she said, she quoted a man named Sam Alberry, who's an Anglican from England who works with same-sex attraction. And he said this to her, and I think it's a profound statement. He said, he said, we can live without sex. There are a lot of single people. Jesus was single. But we cannot live without intimacy. Community. And so we're called to community that embraces and loves and cares for people. And that, that, that's what fostering is all about. And that's what being involved in the body of Christ is all about. I am made for community. So thank you, foster adoption ministry people, and God bless you. And let's go to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to be speaking about Luke 12, 54 to 59. There's a book by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, who was a British evangelical, wonderful exegete of Scripture, and it's entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And he just deals with some of the hard sayings of Jesus, and he writes about it more or less devotionally instead of technically and, and one of the hard sayings of Jesus is the passage we covered last week, but I believe this should also have been in the book. It was not, but it should have been. This is a difficult, difficult passage because it flies in the face of what so many people believe. Just listen to the scripture. So, so Jesus has been talking to his disciples and this sermon that goes from Luke 12, 1 to Luke 13, 9. He's been talking to his disciples. Now he turns once again to the thousands of people that are tripping over themselves trying to get in the presence of Jesus. So he talks to the crowds now. And it's a stern warning to prepare for the coming judgment. And he says to the crowds, when, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And, and when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, how, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? 
as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. So the Christ is saying, be ready for the judgment. Prepare for the judgment. Now, in the year 2005, there was a book released by a man named Christian Smith, who's a professor of sociology at Notre Dame. And he, he had interviewed thousands of young people. And he said that in, in his uh, study, he came across the belief that, that young people believed in what he called a, an MTD, morally therapeutic deism. The God they worshiped was a morally therapeutic deistic God. And he says that a morally therapeutic deistic God has five basic parameters. Number one, it's in the study guide. God exists and he created the world. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's really needed. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, morally therapeutic deism doesn't save. It doesn't have a glorious cross. It doesn't define God. It mocks the God who rules the heavens and the earth. It is horrific theology. At the very least, it is heresy. And yet I would suggest to you, that is the type of God that so many people banter about in our culture. A God who's nice, who wants us to be nice. A God who's walked away and says, do your own thing. A God who says, nice people go to heaven. And I read this passage from the book of Luke, from the words of Christ, and he says, be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared for the coming of, of the Lord. And he says, you know, you, you, you hypocrites, if the north wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot. If the south wind is blowing, you say we may have rain. He says, you know how to read the temperatures and the weather gauges, but you have intentionally not listened to the reality of Christ. Now, in 1989, many of us were here in Charleston, September 1989, and we have something called Hurricane Hugo that hit our city. If you remember, there were 27 fatalities in our state because of Hugo. The damage was $7 billion in, dollars in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. It was, to that point, the costliest storm to impact the United States. The landfall was just north of here. Winds were recorded at 140 miles per hour with gusts of 160 miles an hour. The good news is that we knew it was coming. And the good news is that those who knew that it was coming exited the city, or most of them did. And those who didn't exit the city wish they had. It was a mammoth storm. So Jesus is saying here to these people, you know, you can read the charts. You can read the, 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 the winds. But 
you have intentionally closed your eyes to the, interpret the present time. Jesus said, you know, what about, what about John the Baptist? What about the 400 years where there's no prophet in Israel and John the Baptist comes and John the Baptist, everybody says, is the Elijah who was to come who will usher in the Messianic reign. What about John the Baptist who baptized many of you? What about John the Baptist? What about my baptism? What about my baptism when I'm in the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptizes me and as I come out of the water, you hear a voice that says, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. And, and a dove comes down and, and lies upon me, representing the Holy Spirit. And the heavens are opened and it's glorious. What, what, about, what about the people who've been healed by, by my touch or, or, or the people who have had demons cast out and the demons scream with all their might, depart from us, son of God. What about that? Why are you closing your eyes to the present? Why don't you interpret life in light of the historical context? And we can go a step further and say, a few years later, the Apostle Paul says, what about the resurrected Jesus and the 500 men who have seen the resurrected Jesus plus the apostles who saw him? What, what about this? And so Christ is challenging them to interpret the times in light of the historical findings all around them. And as I, I've looked at this text, I thought, well, there are uh, people who are, who are basically, uh, they were just willfully defiant. Willfully defiant. There's a guy named Augustine, died in 430. Love Augustine. Augustine said this when he was in his mid-20s. He said, Lord, give me purity of heart, but not yet. Not yet. Um, he was saved when he was 32. There's a man named C.S. Lewis who wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis was professor at Oxford. Grew up in a home where his mother died when he was nine. Went to boarding schools where he was uh, really brutalized at one point by a sadistic man. Served in World War I, was wounded in battle. Now he's professor at Oxford. He's 31 years old. At Oxford, he meets a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams who talked to him about, about Jesus shakes his foundations, and this is what he says. You must picture me alone in the room in Oxford, night after night, feeling whatever, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of God, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me, and so in 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was indeed God, and knelt and prayed, and perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And he says this, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love in God which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling and resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? And Lewis is saying, I was willfully defiant. A man named Malcolm Muggeridge, his quote is in the study guide. Malcolm Muggeridge was a, a journalist, 
for 40 years. He was head of the BBC. He was incredibly bright and gifted, and he was a serial adulterer. It's a miracle. His wife stayed with him as long as she did. And, and, and Muggers kept denying Christ and denying the reality of Christ until finally he came to faith in the Lord late in life. And Muggers said this, that whenever a man denies the reality of the living God, it's either a raised fist or it's a runaway sexual desire. A raised fist, I'm going to do it my way, or runaway sexual desire. He said, you either have Nietzsche or D.H. Lawrence. Willfully defiant. And, you know, there's reasons for it. Listen for some of the scriptures. Jesus says in Matthew 11, you must take my yoke upon you and learn from me. When you come to Christ, you take on a yoke. But then he gives you the promise. But my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Man. When I was first converted, I, got, I was, had the privilege of being involved in a group called the Navigators, and we memorized scripture. And one of the scriptures, one of the first scriptures we memorized was in Luke 9 23. But listen, always read the Bible in context. Not to, let me show you why. Luke 9 23, well known verse. Jesus says, If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to follow you. But, but here, here's the sugar. Here's the carrot to that verse. The next verse, verse 24. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you, you want to have life? and Do you want to have joy and have purpose to follow Jesus? Yes, it involves cross-bearing. But it really is it's about discovering the joy that's found in Christ or, or the Bible says that we must be forgiving people. Why? Because God has forgiven us so much more. Or the Bible says that we cannot be involved in sexual immorality, that the marriage bed be undefiled, the sex is for one man and one woman for marriage. But really, the, the rest of the story is that time after time, the Bible says that, that God has given this as a gift, a graceful doe, a loving dear. May your wife satisfy you always with sexual love. Why be captivated by an adulteress? Why embrace the, the bosom of another man's wife? Love your bride. Proverbs 6. Or we say, well, you can't use your speech to demean. And yet, when you walk before Christ, your speech takes on a glorious meaning. 1 Peter 4 says, whoever speaks, let him speak as if it were the utterances of God. So it's not just trivial, banal speech. It's strong. Or the Bible says in Ephesians 4, don't steal. Don't steal. But then it gives you dignity. It says, instead of stealing, work, labor, earn a trade, or learn a trade, and, and, and make money so you can give to people who are really in need. You see the dignity it gives you. So being willfully defined, yes, it involves a cost, but the cost is always a joy. So some people say, I, I don't, I don't want to examine the resurrection of Jesus out of the dead because really, listen, if Jesus is risen from the dead, the Bible says it is a statement that he is who he claimed to be. And if he is who he claimed to be, then I must follow him. Bingo. If he is who he claimed to be, then his words have binding authority in my life. Bingo. You get it. 
to the willfully defiant. There's a second crowd there, second group of people there, and that was the earthly-minded, the apathetic. They want to live just for today and just for this moment. You say, you believe Christ is God in the flesh? Do you believe what the church is affirmed? And they may say something like this, well, maybe, 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 but right now I've got to deal with my business deals and I've got to deal with this person I'm trying to date or my child was just accepted at university, I got to prepare for next year or I have family concerns and all these things can crowd out ultimate questions. And I would just ask you, some of you are willful defiant here today. But some of you have allowed earthly concerns to press out the ultimate question of who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. I, um, I was going to encourage you. I think occasionally you ought to go to the funeral home just to hang out with people who are grieving. That's that kind of tongue-in-cheek. But that's what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes is written by a man named Solomon who was doing great. He hit midlife and he crashed and he burned. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes and a retrospective look. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 7, and it sounds really strange. Listen, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Really? Then he explains. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than silly laughter. For by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. Because the heart deals with ultimate issues. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of silly laughter. So you say, well, occasionally, get your family again, say, hey, we're going to go to the funeral home tonight, just to sit in the corner and observe what happens. I've said this frequently. I love weddings. They're fun. And, and, and yet, I do believe this, and some of you say, well, that's not true. I think it is. I, um, I, people don't listen to me at weddings. They're thinking about how pretty the bride is and the wedding party. And they're thinking about the after wedding party and the, what food will they serve and how good will it be. And, and, but I tell you, I've done funerals outside in a rainstorm. I've done funerals in a lodge. I've done funerals in a kitchen with eight people. I've done funerals in churches. And when you do a funeral, people listen. They are dialed in. They're not doing this very often. Because people know, we all know, we will die. So that's why Ecclesiastes says, man, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to sit around and watch reruns of Parks and Recreation or The Office. There's nothing wrong with comedy, but if that's the depth of your view of life, that it's just a nothingness is here and gone, you can't answer or ask ultimate questions. So, 
Another thing I want to say about, about funerals is, is please, please be, be biblical at funerals. There are more silly things said at funerals than anywhere else in the world unless you're trying to win somebody's affection that's way beyond your grasp. I mean, I've gone to funerals and I've heard people say about somebody who really was not liked and who lived a horrible lifestyle, oh, he was a dear man. And I go, I'm, I got the wrong funeral home, you know, really. I've heard people stand up and say, oh, we know she's with the Lord. And the only time she used the Lord's name was to curse. It makes a mockery of the gospel. So several years ago, there was a, a man who came to this church frequently, and I talked to him about Christ, and he just wasn't interested. He would come to be with his wife and his daughters, and just occasionally. He was, he was, a, nice, he was a nice enough man, but he never gave a profession of faith in Christ. And so he died, and his daughters found a little couplet from a poem that says, uh, uh, do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. And they said, look, this is proof that he's, he's in heaven. I'm going, I said, oh man. Let me read you the poem. It's just a short poem. It's written in 1930. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. That's pantheism. That's nothing, there's nothing about the cross. There's nothing about the shed blood. This is nothing. And yet people read this at, at, at funerals and they want to be comforted. That doesn't, that gives absolutely no comfort. So what I'm saying is be biblically blood, blood earnest. I, I was at a, a beautiful wedding yesterday. It was a great wedding. Be beautiful. Went to the reception. And all these young people there, you know, attractive at the top of their game. Very with it. And I just wanted to walk up to him and say, can I just say this to you? You are tonight and tomorrow and next week making decisions that will impact your life for the next 30, 40 years and into eternity. Be very careful. Consider Jesus. I thought of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua 1 starts out with this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but on it you shall meditate day and night. Then you'll be, be careful to do according to what is written in it. And then he closes the book of Joshua, goes through the historical narrative, and he closes with chapters 23 and 24, where he says, be careful. Be careful. If you're going to serve the God of the Amorites or the God beyond the rivers, do it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Be careful. He says, I, I just say to you, just be careful. Do not be sucked into a benign living that has no content. The third group, very quickly, are the, are the deceived. Nice people. Nice people there. Pharisees, type of wing of the Pharisees. And, and they were saying that we're going to work hard and we're going to work our way into God's favor because we're okay and we're doing well. 
And they have no idea. They haven't read the Bible that says there's none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. And there, there are a lot of people in our church today, in the worship center, here in the sanctuary, who are going to say, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay because I'm working hard to earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor. In fact, Romans chapter 3 says this, that for, the, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Rather, through the law, we become aware of our sin. You read the Bible and say, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I think of one of our favorite hymns, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Do you, do you believe that? I, I do. A wretch. So, that's why Jesus says, you know, if you have an adversary that's taking to court, settle the matter quickly because judgment is coming. And it's hard to fathom it, but it's coming. In September of 1825, in County Durham, England, the first ever steam locomotive engine was launched, 1825. Uh, it was an adventure put together by a group of Quakers who pooled all of their money and went into debt because they said, we think there may be a future with locomotive railway movement. Understatement. And so on September the 27th, thousands of people gathered around this locomotive engine with a string of cars. 600 people packed on the cars. And so every newspaper in England was there. There's excitement in the air. And so they started the locomotive process and the train pulled out. And there was a man on a white horse with a red flag that went in front of the train down the tracks, waving the flag saying, get off the train tracks, get off the train tracks, you could be injured. And so that they made a two-hour journey from point A to point B. The locomotive broke down twice. They had to do repairs. But they made it to the vast hurrahs and applause of thousands of people who greeted them at the end of the line. This train went down the tracks for two hours at the amazing speed of 12 miles per hour. A few years later, there were some medical people who said, we would caution you to never get on a train that goes faster than 35 miles per hour because if you go faster than 35 miles per hour, we're afraid the facial muscles and the facial skeletal process could be flattened out and you'd be permanently scarred for life. True story. If you'd been there in 1825 and greeted the people, says, let me tell you something. By the year 2017, there will be bullet trains that go 225 miles per hour. And some bullet trains will go for a short distance at 375 miles per hour. They would say, you're kidding me. We can't imagine that. Just because we can't fully imagine it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Brothers and sisters, the day of judgment is coming. Before Hugo, go back to Hugo, before Hugo, people said, well, hurricanes are devastating and they do this. And here is a educational movie to watch or here's a book on hurricanes. And I said, wow, look at what happened in Texarkana in the early part of the 20th century. Wow, look at this. But when I came back into town after Hurricane Hugo hit and I saw the devastation, I went, wow, 
when we're on the Isle of Palms and saw where a house was lifted off of its foundation and taken across the road and plopped down like the Wizard of Oz, I went, wow. When I heard stories about, one story about the 16-foot surge, put a dolphin and a bathtub of a house on the Isle of Palms, the second floor. I went, wow. I, I, I could see. Undoubtedly, one of the greatest experiences of my life, two of them were being there when our children were born. Phenomenal. I read about it. I heard about it. Nothing prepared me for it. But I knew it was going to happen. I, I, I say that because the moralistic, therapeutic deism that you hear so often is not the biblical truth. Listen, a day of judgment is coming if you're not in Christ by faith, I would plead with you to consider the gospel. This is what the Bible says about the day of judgment. It's from Revelation chapter 6. Listen. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and, and the generals and the rich and the powerful and, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The great ones, the generals, the rulers, the powerful, the, the, the elite of the culture, as well as the slaves, hid themselves. The only way to be hidden and secure and safe is in the reality of Christ. That's why Jesus says, you see the weather signs, but what about the historical reality of who I am? That's why Jesus says, if, you, if you're going to court, settle matters quickly, quickly, because the day of judgment is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this word. And we pray earnestly, earnestly, that you would give us a heart of compassion for men and women without Jesus. That we would look at our co-workers and our family members and our neighbors and our friends and we would read this passage, Lord Christ, and, and we would say, have you considered the empty tomb? Have you considered the miracle-working Savior? Have, have you considered the ascension into heaven? Have you considered that the apostles went to their deaths, cruel deaths, many of them, with a declaration ringing from their lips, Jesus is risen from the dead. It wasn't orchestrated. It wasn't a sly of hand. It is historical fact. So God, by your grace, teach us, I pray, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.